in the High Center Studios on the traditional lands of the Susquehannock here in Grantham, Pennsylvania. This is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 46 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We're pushing up on 50 here, Drew. We are, and we will get there before Maybe the Maybe we should have some kind of special like anniversary celebration or something at, at 50. But a little bit of a different episode today. Um, I've been on the road most of February, been doing some things with my book on Donald Trump. I was out in L.A. and Colorado Springs and... So in this episode, the commentary and the interview is going to be done by our one and only producer, Drew Hermeling. Drew, why don't you tell us a little bit about this episode? Now, I know that we are talking about politics and Native American history. Uh, Elizabeth Warren just uh, announced her candidacy for president of the United States as we are recording this and we're trying to bring some history to bear on contemporary politics here. So uh, I'm excited about this episode and I'm, I'm really interested to hear more about our guests and what you're going to do with it. Yeah, well, you had a, a last minute uh, schedule change and so we had to move a couple things around and, and this is an episode we had kind of in the pipeline. We were planning on going after uh, at some point during the spring, but all things came together and as our listeners probably know, I am a historian of colonial America with an emphasis on on Native American and and European diplomacy. And so uh, it seemed like the best, if you're going to call him the substitute, might as well give him an episode in which he he might have a little bit of an expertise. So we're bringing in Dr. Julie Reed, who is an associate professor at Penn State, a historian of of Cherokee history and also a member of the Cherokee Nation. And uh, we're hoping to get her thoughts on not just this specific claim surrounding Elizabeth Warren's supposed indigeneity, but also just the deep history of Indian identity and and the role that claiming Indian identity has played in American history. Yeah, we've been trying to get a really good episode here on Native American history, especially on all of these things related to cultural appropriation and sports teams and Pocahontas and all of this other stuff. So I think... Julie Reed is going to be a great interview, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what you're going to do with it. Right. This idea kind of blossomed when I was up in Chicago. Uh, as, as people know, I was in Chicago talking about the podcast at the American Historical Association. There was a rapid response panel. Unfortunately, I couldn't actually be there. I had to catch a flight. But there's a rapid response panel specifically on the issue of, of Elizabeth Warren's DNA test and, and this, this controversy surrounding her claims to being a, a descendant of the Cherokee. Uh, so who better than someone who is both a scholar and member of, of the Cherokee Nation to come in and give us a little bit more of the of the nuance that I think unfortunately is lacking in 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 the conversations we're seeing on uh, on news sites and on places like Twitter. Yeah, I think this is definitely going to be a really interesting episode. Um one of the things that uh we're constantly trying to do here of course is always bring um good history to bear on what's going on in American life these days. And with that in mind, Drew, tell us a little bit more about how our listeners out there can connect with the podcast. Well, the way of improvement leads home is a proud member of the recorded history podcast network. So head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, many thanks to Jennings college consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beattie and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beattie has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help you help make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. Again, that's lindhurstgroup.org, L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. Now, 
I also want to add, we need to spread the word about the podcast, make sure it's getting in as many earbuds and car stereos as we can. And the research tells us the best way to do that is to tell a friend. So if you have someone in your life who you know loves history, who has a long commute, or needs a, a little motivation when they're running on the treadmill, connect them to the podcast. Tell them to download it. It's available on all, all, the, all the media, all the podcasting sources, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. And if you do want to connect with us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. And always, if you can, leave a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. Yeah, we rely greatly, Drew, on our on our supporters, our listeners, even our patrons. It's been nice being on the road, meeting so many of our patrons uh, this uh, winter. I uh, met Kate Logan, I think I mentioned, down in Greenwich, New Jersey. She's one of our gold patrons. And actually on Monday, I don't think I even told you this yet, Drew, I met another one of our gold patrons who came to my lecture at USC, Ron Schooler. Uh, and his wife, Nathania, both showed up. So it was nice touching base with him. We really need your support to keep this thing going. But for those of you who have already donated to our Patreon campaign, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, before we get to our guest, Drew, I believe you have some commentary for us today. Throughout Elizabeth Warren's political career, she's had to respond to reports that she had claimed indigenous heritage during her time as an academic. This subsequently led Donald Trump to mock her, as he does to so many of his political enemies, landing on Pocahontas as his preferred insulting nickname for her. He even went so far as to challenge Warren to a DNA test, offering a million dollars to charity if she did. Warren took the test, which demonstrated that she had a distant Indian ancestor, likely as far back as six to ten generations. Like many people these days, I first heard the news of Senator Elizabeth Warren's DNA test on Twitter. However, unlike most people, I heard it first on Native Twitter, a community of indigenous Twitter users who focus on social issues affecting Indian country. Because of my work, I follow as many of the leading indigenous scholars, journalists, and artists on social media as I can. Unsurprisingly, those were the first commenters I saw in my feed, rather than journalists from NPR or the New York Times. Many Americans initially struggled to contextualize Warren's press release. Non-indigenous supporters of her seemed to applaud the release, pointing to it as proof of the validity of her claims. Non-indigenous opponents mocked her for, quote, barely being an Indian. However, among the indigenous people I follow, the comments followed a third path. The results of the DNA test were irrelevant. The fact that the debate was taking place at all proved a deep misunderstanding of what it means to be an American Indian. And it was a bad omen for what may lay ahead. On the one hand, you have an incumbent president who has already proven his willingness to use racist slurs, race baiting, and appeals to white nationalism. On the other hand, you have a candidate trying to thread the needle between past claims to indigenous heritage and an acknowledgement of her own whiteness. That debate may soon take place on the biggest of political stages, a presidential campaign. While one candidate will ultimately win and one will lose, the people most hurt by this particular back and forth undoubtedly will be indigenous people in America, people whose identities have long been used as mascots, brand names, and literary tropes. If Warren wins the Democratic nomination for president, will be able to add another flavor of cultural appropriation to the litany of racist abuse indigenous people have endured for hundreds of years. A political jab used by a president unafraid to mock and ridicule his political rivals. Soon after Warren released her DNA test, I began teaching my J-Term Native American Cultures course. Frankly, I didn't need to make too many changes to my syllabus in response as the use and misuse of American Indian identities has always occupied the center of the course. Consider the two books I assign. The first is Playing Indian, the hugely important and enduring work by the enrolled Standing Rock Sioux scholar Philip Deloria. In this book, Deloria argues that pretending to be Indian has been a central feature of non-indigenous American identities ever since white Bostonians dressed up as Mohawks and dumped British tea into Boston Harbor. These colonists once saw themselves as British people living in America. Now, 
they worked to create a new independent identity. And they did so in part by playing Indian, giving white Americans a sense of attachment to a place where they were not indigenous. This type of play has persisted to this day. In an age when most people would never think of wearing blackface, medical school yearbooks notwithstanding, students still dress up for Thanksgiving pageants wearing construction paper headdresses, and sports teams still feature indigenous mascots. But what Deloria also makes clear is that playing Indian does not produce empathy or a deeper understanding of real Indian people. Instead, it only works to exaggerate difference. When non-indigenous kids go to summer camp and live in, quote, teepees and get, quote, Indian names, they do so knowing that at the end of the summer they'll be headed home free of all of the burdens and challenges of actually being an Indian in America. They get to take those things deemed desirable about an imagined Indian existence, a closeness to nature, a freedom from the labor of industrial life, without having to reckon with the reasons why real indigenous people are pushed out of the narrative. All the perks, none of the hardship. The second book is Real Indians by Cherokee sociologist Ava Marie Garrett. In this book, Garrett outlines the many ways American Indian identity has been defined. There are the legal claims to American Indian identity, tied directly to official enrolled membership and tribal citizenship. There are the biological claims, rooted in the problematic concept of blood quantum, the idea that you can have 50% or 25% American Indian blood. There are cultural claims to indigenous identity. Perhaps the most telling example of this kind of claim comes from the mashpee of what is today Cape Cod. In federal court, they had to prove that they were, in fact, Indians and did so by proving their cultural distinctiveness. They did so by sharing legends, cultural traditions, and even individual members' proficiency in basketry and beadwork. And finally, Garrett does address the issue of those who self-identify as Indian despite not making a specific legal, biological, or cultural claim. This would seem to be the most relevant to Warren's claim, and as our guest today will demonstrate, even if the claimant insists that they are not seeking any real connection to indigenous communities, a quote-unquote self-identifying Indian can bring a lot of harm to indigenous communities just by oversimplifying and misrepresenting what it means to be Indian. While all of these definitions are useful in certain contexts, they are also severely limited in others. Garrett's solution is what she terms, quote, radical indigenism. The problems with all these ways of reckoning American identity is they are not the ways indigenous communities would define themselves if not forced to by people outside of those communities. For example, many indigenous communities have long traditions of adoption. Is an adopted member of the indigenous community any less indigenous than someone with, quote, Indian blood? Would legal definitions of identity be so important if indigenous Americans were not forced to defend their sovereignty against a nation that has advocated policies such as, quote, Indian removal and residential schools operated under the motto, quote, kill the Indian, save the man? Further, while Warren's claim is dubious to say the least, there are many people who, because of the nature of their ancestry, have legitimate claims to being indigenous despite not being a member of a recognized nation. Or in the case of the Mashpee, are they not real Indians if they opt for basketball shoes over moccasins? Or if they attend a Christian church? Radical indigenism argues that Indian communities and Indian ways of knowing should set the terms of Indian identities, not the scientists working in a lab for 23andMe or Ancestry.com, nor the federal officials of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Gradually, I think indigenous voices broke through in the debate following the release of Warren's DNA results. Increasingly, even Warren's supporters have admitted that this was probably a political misstep. Warren herself has apologized to Cherokee leaders for her mistake. Unfortunately for indigenous people who are already all too often ignored in national politics, Warren learning her lesson likely comes too late. It's not going to stop Trump from calling her Pocahontas. It's not going to stop indigenous people from becoming unwilling pawns in an increasingly ugly political debate. Perhaps Senator Warren should have taken more time to learn from actual indigenous people before trying to make her claim to indigenous heritage.
Dr. Julie Reed is an associate professor of Native American and American history at Penn State University and a member of the Cherokee Nation. Her first book is titled Serving the Nation, Cherokee Sovereignty and Social Welfare, 1800 to 1907, which came out in 2016 with Oklahoma University Press. She is currently working on a project tentatively titled The Means of Education Shall Forever Be Encouraged in This Nation, an American and Cherokee educational history, which will combine both a book-length study and a GIS project. She was a member of a recent Rapid Response Roundtable at the American Historical Association meeting in Chicago titled Native American Identities, Racial Slurs, and Elizabeth Warren. And she joins us today to talk about that panel. We'd like to welcome Dr. Julie Reed, Associate Professor of Native American and American History at Penn State University, a member of the Cherokee Nation and a recent panelist on the Rapid Response Roundtable at the American Historical Association titled Native American Identities, Racial Slurs, and Elizabeth Warren. Welcome to the show, Dr. Reed. Thank you, Drew. I appreciate you having me. Well, probably the best way to start is to go big picture. And so, for starters, why is American Indian identity so fraught in American history? Or in other words, why are we looking back to the very beginnings of colonialism in order to understand what is, you know, a very contemporary debate? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, I think one of the obvious reasons is that there are very early conflicting ideas about race and belonging, um, depending on whose perspective you're looking at. And and these certainly connect to economic systems that were in play um, in the colonial era. And and particularly, we have to think through all of the different ways that, that people are reckoning tribal belonging. I mean, the tribal diversity today, there are there are over 570 federally recognized tribes, and there were as many tribes at, at that moment. And so we're talking about different ways of communities reckoning belonging. We had systems that were matrilineal in the case of the Northeast and the Southeast in particular, but also parts of the Southwest. There were also tribal communities who did think about patrilineality in some ways and, and, and descent through a, a male forebear. Um, Additionally, when communities come together, obviously they they intermarry. And this was true of, of different tribal groups, but it was certainly true when Europeans arrived as well. And so then you have conflicting understandings of, of belonging um, that begin to um, complicate each group's understanding of who they are in relationship to one another. And I think, and as we know as historians, that Ideas about belonging and ideas about identity also change over time. And so for historians, we follow many of these ideas over time. For me, I I pay particular attention to Cherokee citizenship laws and when those come into play and have to think through the fact that there there are members of the community who are continuing to reckon identity through a matrilineal descent, descent through women to a common ancestor. And at the same time, there are other people who are beginning to understand Cherokee identity through ideas of citizenship and that these two things are operating in tandem for a period of time. And certainly that these have continued to change. Um, One of the best articles that I use in my classes is one by Taya Miles, who has really changed our understandings of race among the five tribes. It's an article called Nancy the narrative of a Cherokee woman. And and that article does a phenomenal job of helping people understand where ideas of, of race within the United States come into direct conflict with understandings of who was Cherokee based on matrilineality and that those didn't match. And so I think we have to go back in order to understand all these moments that these ideas are in conflict, but also the ways that they changed over time and continue um, to challenge our understandings today. So for for many people, I think, especially many non-Indigenous people like myself, the idea of being Indian is often measured with this kind of pseudoscience known as blood quantum. So, you know, maybe for our listeners who aren't as familiar with this term, what is blood quantum and why does that idea have such a complicated history in America? Sure. So we can look to the the 19th century in particular um, to see the language of blood beginning to kind of show up in the records, for instance, you start to see these ideas of full bloods and mixed breeds or half breeds. But it's really not until 
we don't have an understanding of the fractions that we hear today, like, oh, I'm a quarter, I'm an eighth, I'm one thirty second. Um, those fractions are a direct result of the Dawes General Allotment Act, which was passed in 1887 and later extended to the five tribes, which includes the Cherokee, in the Curtis Act passed in 1898. And, and the goals of these acts were to break up the communal land holdings of tribes and disperse those lands to individual members of those communities and private land holdings. Um, and then whatever was in surplus to sell that off to white settlers. And now I should say most tribes oppose these efforts um, adamantly. Um, and in a compromise to protect uh, people that were viewed as, as more vulnerable to these new land ownership systems, particularly those deemed full-bloods, the federal government held these lands in trust, these individual lands in trust, for 25 years. And this was supposedly to give Indians time to adjust to the new system um, placed on the lands. And, but then the Burke Act of 1906 enabled Indians to petition competency commissions, and that's what they were called, competency commissions, to lift their restrictions. And the lifting of these restrictions enabled them to buy and sell and lease these allotted lands. So this is where blood comes into play again, because those with low blood quantums, which was less than a half, um, were often deemed more competent generally. And so they had less difficulties getting these restrictions lifted, and those that were deemed um, less competent, often those half or more, faced a few more complications. And of course, all of these numbers were, were placed on Indian people by federal employees, by and large, who were making very subjective decisions about blood quantum, not based on perfect understandings of, of when people intermarried with other groups, rather they were basing it on whether someone was monolingual, um, what kind of clothes they were wearing the day they came to see the commission. Were they dressed more nicely? That must mean that they're more civilized and more confident. Um, Rose Strenglau's book, Sustaining the Cherokee Family, does a phenomenal job looking at both the gendered critiques that were happening in all of this, the racial critiques that many of these um, federal officials were making. And, and yet it has this science quality. It's sciency in the ways that it gets um, discussed. And the, the other side of this is this is not how Cherokee people, this is not how Indian people understood who they were as people. They weren't walking around saying, oh, I'm half or, oh, I'm this. And in fact, you see in much of the testimony that when asked their blood quantum, most Indian people didn't even understand how to answer that question. Um, they could tell you who their kin were. They could tell you who they were related to. They could tell you who their families were, who their cousins were, where they were born um, relative to events in time. But they certainly weren't saying who I am is 132nd. And, and so this is, this is both imposed on the outside. It's given this air of scientific um, and quantitative power over Indian people. And it's also one of those things that the legacies of this we still live with today. I mean, I have a CDIB card that has a fraction of blood listed on it. And so th these are things that, that enrolled people still struggle with um, and grapple with and our tribal governments have to grapple with in very real ways today. Right. And I mean, at least in my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of these developments are happening simultaneously with some very different theories about, you know, quote unquote, blood quantum, especially among the African-American community and the, and the so-called one drop rule. In Absolutely. Which any African-American <laughs> with one drop of black blood is considered black. And at least in some of the courses I've taught, we, we've, we've really unpacked the reasons why there is this kind of high bar for qualifying to be Indian and this, you know, much lower bar for qualifying as being black and all of the kind of problems and motivations that the United States government has for having those different criteria. 
Can you, can you expound on that a little bit more? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a way in which if we want to convince people of the social construction of race, looking at these very different constructions of laws surrounding racial identities related to African-Americans and related to Native Americans, it's so obvious that these systems were constructed in such a way as, as to keep one group labeled black, right? forever and ever, so long as there's one drop. And another group ceases to exist pretty quickly um, in terms of Indianness. And so this is one of those moments where you have to think about, well, what are the motivations of these two things? And certainly related to African-Americans, there was a desire to keep first people enslaved and and create laws that kept a, a system of slavery in place that allowed lots of people to have free labor. Um, but secondly, it you know, there's an extraction of land that they need to have happen relative to Indian people. So there's a different motivation with each group, too. One is about labor. One is about land. And so these different kind of technologies of race and legal systems of race begin to develop in order to to meet um, those particular demands, maintaining a labor pool a very, uh, you know, either first unfree labor pool and then a, a poorly paid labor pool, and then secondly, to continue this land extraction. So if we think about these blood quantums, it behooves federal officials to get these restrictions lifted and to have someone be considered less Indian in order to immediately be able to buy land or speculate in that land or get leasing rights to land that may in fact have mineral rights or may have oil um, or may just be really rich farming land or grazing land. And so there are different motivations that are that are determining these two paths of understandings of, of race. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with the unique sovereignty claims that are connected to American Indian identity. You brought up the Dawes Act, um, which is a, an especially kind of insidious moment in, in American history when the U.S. government was working very hard to erode indigenous sovereignty. So can you explain this relationship and why are Indian nations like the Cherokee Nation so protective of their identities in this regard? So, you know, I think there's several pieces to this. I would say tribes have worked very hard to maintain their communal lives and their communal spaces to the best of their abilities um, for millennia now. And so um, many of the claims to being today and, and to having certain legal rights as political bodies come from um, assertions of inherent sovereignty. This is the idea that political sovereignty and autonomy of tribes preexisted the arrival of Europeans. So it takes an acknowledgement that that tribes have sovereignty because they had legal codes, they had diplomatic measures that preexisted the arrival of Europeans. And with that being said, Europeans, you know, kind of worked their ways in and around those systems of sovereignty. That on the one hand, you have a, a downplaying in moments of kind of a, a, you see in travelers accounts kind of this these biases playing out that because these ways of being and these legal codes are so different from their own that that there must be no governance at all. And so so you often hear accounts kind of refusing to even acknowledge either because of bias or because of uh, just it behooves them to not acknowledge this, this tribe's existence and governing bodies and systems. Um, but then on the other hand, we, we have a rich history of acknowledging that sovereignty. Treaties were the tool of negotiating with tribes both before the advent of the, the United States, but also immediately after the, the birth of the United States. One of the first acts of Congress was ratification of the Delaware Treaty in September of 1778. It's one of the first things that they do. And, and so the United States extended the exact same tools that had been used before to negotiate. Treaties, of course, are, are a means of both recognizing the political the rights of another community, of another country. Um, and at the same time, we have to kind of grapple with the idea that these treaties um, were also tools of colonialism. They, they often were attempts to defraud and bribe and separate American Indians from their lands. And at the same time, there were a moment when tribes could negotiate 
almost on, you know, on equal footing at moments with the federal government in order to get the best deal they could relative to these loss of lands. And so what I think many people don't understand because it's often framed through through contempt for the welfare state, right? Contempt for welfare programs that that somehow what tribes are receiving is welfare. Um, and refusing to kind of acknowledge, no, in fact, much of what tribes get is the result of the federal government's commitments to treaties. And so this is a misunderstanding that continues to operate within the minds of most people. Now, going from there, that m- many tribes, as a result of treaties, don't have land. They've lost many rights to timber, to uh, the the resources that are on their lands. Um, they've had to fight hard for fishing rights or for hunting rights or for continued use of sacred spaces. And so um, this question of identity or this question of why people are so protective of Indian identity today, when you've been engaged in these struggles as communities for hundreds of years and you have so little um, material wealth that you once possessed, one of the things you continue to have is your understandings of who you are as a community and as a group. And so when people lay claim to those identities, whether it be claiming a great uh, grandmother who was Cherokee, there's a resentment that that doesn't actually include any communication or, or interaction with the community itself. It's just it's just an individual claim on yet another resource that the community is attempting to hang on to. And so it, it, in many ways, many Native people feel like it's just an extension of colonialism's extractive approaches to, to Native peoples. And so I think it's not completely unsurprising to me that many communities defend who they are and the boundaries of their communities very fiercely. So you are a Cherokee citizen yourself. Non-Indigenous people claim Cherokee descent, and in particular, far more often than other Indigenous identities. You know, why is this? Could there be any truth to it? Or is this actually just wrapped up in a very kind of romantic and fictional uh, claim to some sort of identity in the, in the, in the manner of, of, you know, Philip Deloria's work on playing Indian? So, you know, this is a tricky one, because on the one hand, could there be truth? Yes. Is there truth? Probably not. (laughs) So, I mean, so let me say this. I think there are a variety of reasons that Cherokee gets claimed the most by people. Um, I think that some of it is gendered in that because Cherokees were matrilineal, you know, it's usually the story you get when people tell you this is that it was their great, great, great grandmother, never a grandfather, because what that would mean is that a white woman had relationships with a non-white man. And that's problematic in the gendered understandings of of, of larger themes in in American history. So having relationships with a Indian woman doesn't seem nearly as, as problematic for many people. So there's that piece. I would add to that 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 additionally, the Cherokees had the best press, both literally and figuratively. Um, the Cherokees were the first to have a, a press that operated in the United States, a bilingual press. They used it as a tool to defend their sovereignty during the removal era. Um, they are widely known. I would say if history textbooks at the K through 12 level cover Native American history, there's probably three major events that get covered. One of them is probably going to be the Trail of Tears connected to the Cherokees. And so there is a there is a a knowledge of Cherokees, albeit a very surface level one, um, that most people operate with. Even if they can't name any other tribe, they probably can name Cherokee people. So additionally, there there's a mythology in the southeast in particular, and it, it, it has operated in, in public history museums throughout the south and continues to operate in many places that that the Eastern Band, which is one of the three federally recognized tribes, continues to exist today because all of those those members, parents and grandparents escaped removal by hiding, which is, again, only partially true. Um, those 
members who have now become the Eastern Band of Cherokees had a legal right to remain in the Southeast. They had, they had a treaty, two treaties actually, the 1817 and 1819 treaties both made, um, had provisions for people to remain behind the Southeast. And this is why I say there could be some truth to this. Now, as a Cherokee historian, I, I often get asked about these things. I often have students who will tell me about their great-great-grandmother. Um, that's often the only information they operate with. And so I, I try to provide tools to figuring out, well, let's track this down. Let's do the genealogical work that might be necessary to, um, to figure this out. And I think people are often surprised to hear that by the time of the Dawes Allotment Act, so when these lands are being distributed in Indian Territory and in what will become Oklahoma, that the Cherokees in particular have 17 official registers of their members over the course of the 19th century. 17. That doesn't include going to the, the, the newspapers and looking for individual members. These are these are census records with with names on them. These are pension records. These are payment payments for losses during removal, payments related to land. These are official federal and Cherokee Nation census records and other kinds of documents available. 17 over the course of the 19th century. And the Dawes allotment the Dawes officials actually pulled upon six of those pretty consistently. And so there's a suspicion amongst those of us who work with these records and know how vast they are relative to Cherokees, that the idea that your family doesn't show up on any of these records over the course of the 19th century then seems implausible that you continue your family, even if they were connected in some way earlier moment, had had any real connection or responsibilities to that community for a very long time. And then you get into kind of individual claims versus community claims, right? That that I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and I get held to account. So when I make public statements, I'm going to hear from Cherokees who disagree with me. They're going to hold me to account and they're going to ask me to answer in some very sometimes intimate ways relative to my family, sometimes public ways relative to other other Cherokee people who are who are knowledgeable and thoughtful on issues. Um, and so there's there's a very personal accounting and reciprocity that has to happen between me and my community. And, and one thing that I hear said a lot, Cherokee people have said it, but other Native people have said it is, that's great that you claim that community, but does that community claim you? And part of that community claiming can be scolding you for for things that they disagree with you on, both privately and in more public spheres, but the idea that that you just get to lay this claim out there with no responsibilities to that actual community um, rubs many people the wrong way, and, and and I think that's where that's where many of these claims to identity get more complicated for many Native people. And and the other piece of that is, and I think this is tr- not just true of the Cherokees. I think it's true of many Native communities who have borne the weight of, of really devastating and deadly colonial policies. I mean, the Cherokees suffered a one-quarter population loss. And, and that seems, you know, I mean, I always think that number is, doesn't, doesn't help us understand the kind of incredible loss of life during removal. But if we think about that one in, in one quarter, that means that no one didn't know someone who had died as a d- direct result of removal. That regardless of who you were in that community, you knew someone and you probably were related to somebody who died. And so that devastation. And then if we add to that the the, the Cherokee Civil War that followed, which was a terrible internal war that was really about the pain of removal. And then we add to that getting dragged into the United States Civil War. And then we add to that allotment, all of which happens within basically a 45 to 50 year span for this community to have stayed together, um, even when they're fighting, even when they're grappling with core issues of who they are and who they will be in the future. um, There's something to be said for the community values and the resiliency of that community 
that I think many of us resent when someone lays claim to this this community, but doesn't in fact want to want to understand and appreciate those corporate claims to both the pain and the resiliency that come with living through colonialism. You know, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, we, we've got a new wrinkle to this, this way to lay claim, and that's this consumer DNA test. And, and so, you know, full disclosure, I've taken one myself. Uh, it confirmed what I already knew. I'm very, very white. But uh, <laughs> it, it was, you know, for me, it was just something interesting to do. Just kind of wondering exactly to what extent the family history I've inherited is true or not. But in Indian country, it's way more complicated. So can you unpack some of the ways in which it is more complicated and and also probably harmful as these consumer DNA tests relate to Indian country? Native Americans and scientific data and the use of scientific data are incredibly fraught and painful. I mean, one of the more recent examples is that in 2010, the Havusapai tribe sued Arizona State and one for the misuse of, of genetic testing and misrepresenting what they were using genetic testing for. The community had consented back in the 90s to, um, to have researchers take a look at their DNA in order to address diabetes, which was plaguing their community. And instead, researchers used it for all sorts of other kinds of testing that the community had not consented to. And as any of us know, who work at universities, there's a pretty robust IRB policy in place related to the use of human subjects. And this is in direct violation of that policy. And this is a public institution engaging in this, which has some more checks and balances on it than, than private companies even, um, I think, have in many instances. Um, I would say not maybe directly connected to DNA, but just this past week, Forbes magazine had to pull images out of an article that was touting some research by um, scholars that had looked at human skulls and indigenous skulls um, connected to the study of syphilis. And they used these images in, again, in kind of direct violation of communities' um, rights to images connected to NAGPRA, which is the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act and in violation of, of standards that had been set up between this community and, and the institution that is holding these skulls. So these are two recent examples of, of public institutions not fully thinking through their ethical treatment of, of human remains generally, um, but also the, the living, breathing people's rights to their to their DNA and to their uh, their bodies in a way that is that, that is problematic. And, and if if we think through this in, in longer terms, you know, this has been true more broadly. Again, this is a piece of colonialism, kind of the extraction of human remains, the extraction of funerary objects, objects that were of import and and culturally important to people at the time of their death. And that where are many of these objects housed and studied? They're, they're all over the world. Um, they're often not in the communities themselves because people have laid claim to that, that biological data. Um, and, and, and communities can't get this stuff back in many instances. There's auctions that play out that, that are engaged in a, a selling of human remains and and so I think there's concern um, broadly about the relationships between scientific data and Native people that extends to DNA. But beyond that, if we're just thinking about DNA tests today, DNA tests are not how Indigenous communities determine who their members are. But this is already a distortion of thinking through. It's a non-Indigenous way of reckoning who is a community member. And, and so to use this DNA testing to make certain kinds of claims about connections or community stands in, in direct conflict with communities saying, this is not how we determine who we are. How we determine who we are is, is through our clans or through our kin or through certain adoption practices. Added to that, I think there's real questions about um, the disruptions that could play out in families Generally, that, that 
there's a, I've always thought there, there was an intellectual smartness to matrilineality because one always knew who the mother was. Um, so of course you always knew who your clan was through your mother because you could always identify who your mother was. And, and do we really want to add those kinds of disruptions into our community by adding DNA testing or to making assertions to DNA testing within our own communities that could have very painful consequences for families? So I think between the ethics connected to many of these DNA testing um, questions, I think between people making, again, these kinds of individual claims on Indianness through science that doesn't comport with indigenous and native communities' sense of who they are, which again has a longer legacy of like indigenous people being told who they are by non-indigenous people. And DNA testing threatens to be another mechanism to do that. Um, and admittedly, very few of us as not geneticists fully appreciate what this data actually means. Um, you know, of course, there's been all these stories of sending in dog DNA and finding out that dog DNA is, in fact, part indigenous, right? That there's been a couple of these stories that have played out. So that this is an imperfect science to begin with, and yet we're putting a lot of stock in it when it still has some ways to go in terms of what's available at the end of the target aisle, um, available to our families who are, you know, sending Christmas presents to one another. And, and I think, again, it's just not how communities reckon who's a part of their community and who isn't. And so I think, and yet, it, it, again, it often gets used as a tool. I mean, you only have to go into any chat room or Facebook group around some of these genealogical claims and people will say, well, I'm this because I took a DNA test. And, and, and again, that just is an affront to how um, indigenous people today reckon who their communities are. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's also, I don't mean to minimize this, but almost a kind of quotidian issue in that, you know, now we have all of these individuals who've taken a DNA test, think that they are now, they have a legitimate claim to indigeneity, and then they go into indigenous communities and want to do, you know, research about their family. I was in um, Tulsa at a, a Society of Early Americanists conference, and one of the archivists from the Cherokee Nation was there, and he was just talking about, like, how much labor is now put on him and how many scarce resources are now being allocated towards helping people who've gotten a DNA test look at, you know, genealogical records that are housed there and um, uh, at the Cherokee Nation. And, you know, and I just feel like, again, and you've brought this up before, it, it's just a, another example of kind of exploitation of indigenous people as if they're kind of just something worth studying. Right. You know, something mm -hmm. to mine for archaeological or anthropological evidence. Absolutely. Um, let's move to unpacking some of the other very specific issues in this this war of words over indigenousness taking place between uh, uh, Trump and, and, and Senator Warren. Um, and specifically, the, the ways in which uh, Trump has landed on Pocahontas as his uh, insult uh, of choice. And, and, and maybe you can speak a little bit to the ways in which po Pocahontas as a national character – Disney princess, again, one of those like handful of indigenous historical figures that even elementary school kids can name. And now, you know, this kind of insult. Yeah, well, again, I think there's to some extent we have to analyze Trump, but we also have to analyze our larger societies, again, touchstones relative to what they they know or the kinds of key terms they can call up around Native American history. Um I think in many ways what we've seen um, Trump do is, is use a Native American woman who, again, most people have a very superficial knowledge of, again, because of the things that you've described, because she was depicted in a Disney, Disney movie, because there has been um, some larger sense of her in popular culture. But she's one of the few Native American women that, that people would be able to quickly name. And, and so to use her name as a disparagement when so many Native women have been lost to us as historians, as communities, um, that, that it's astonishing to me the number of times that women's names do not get written down, even when they are the central actors in the story of 
a missionary exchange with with local people. Um, so so the fact that Trump is using this as an as an insult against a political opponent feels wrong on a whole variety of levels. That he's turned someone that we look to as again a person who experienced profound change in her lifetime, who experienced kind of the full weight of of early colonial interactions, as someone who more than likely was forcibly married and and moved abroad as a result of this this marital exchange and then turns her into a cheap insult um, shows a complete and total disregard for Pocahontas's history. It's a failure to acknowledge or position her within her own community. But that has continued, right? Um, I mean, it's not just that Trump is pulling up Pocahontas. He's pulling up these like kind of five big events and or people that he can call upon, which speaks both to, again, the kind of superficiality of knowledge related to Native American history in this country, that, that people will recognize those terms but not understand enough um, to to necessarily be fully outraged by by what he's doing. You know, it's the same if we extend it to his more recent tweets where he's pulled up Wounded Knee, and and again, his more recent tweet relative to meeting Elizabeth Warren on the trail, all caps, which Cherokee people have pretty understood exactly what he was meaning in those sentences. And... And so I think there's a way in which he's hopefully he's kind of exhausted his key terms at this point and he's got nothing left to pull from. But I suspect we're going to continue to hear Pocahontas as an insult. And and that just, again, horrifies many of us who know that to have a Native American woman's name known is already a fight um, in terms of getting people to recognize the presence and, and name indigenous women who exist in this country's history. And then, you know, I mean, I think for many of us who are thinking about our current moment where First Nations and American Indian women are, are the rallying cause behind murdered and missing, missing indigenous women campaigns, that in many ways it feels like this cheapening of a Native American woman who was lost to her community through moving abroad is in many ways, you know, there's a symbolism there to like, how do we get our president or our public officials to acknowledge this very real problem in our contemporary moment relative to murdered and missing indigenous women when one of the figures who is known to us is being lost to us again through this discourse of insult. So let's turn specifically to Elizabeth Warren. You know, I want to take this question because we've unpacked a number of these issues quite well. It, it seems to now where we are today and, uh, you know, we're recording this in February of 2019. She seems to be apologizing more for what she's done in the past, claiming indigenous heritage uh, when, you know, she was an academic and now, you know, apologizing for even the release of this DNA test, this press release. Why is that still such a problem? And I don't want to frame this the wrong way, but a lot of those indigenous scholars who I follow are quick to point out, it's like, it, it, this might be too little too late. Can you maybe explain the problems with her trying to thread that needle? Cherokee women in particular, when she ran the campaign against Brown and these issues came out in 2011, 2012, there was a group of Cherokee women, very good Cherokee genealogists who had, who had done her genealogy. And of course, at that time, her claim was that her parents had to elope because of the fact that there was this Indianness in the background and that it was shameful. And some genealogists kind of looked at this and said, well, you know, this this doesn't actually hold up given given the kind of documentary record that's out there. And they actually tried to meet with her in 2012 and she refused to do so. And so certainly I can understand her as a politician not not wanting to meet with detractors. But on the other hand, there is this this more problematic history of of her having now made this claim for many, many years. And the claim has shifted between Cherokee and Delaware. Um, And and yet there's also a kind of backstory of Native people attempting to interact with her based on these claims and her 
her unwillingness to engage. And so again, I go back to this point of like, you know, the unwillingness to actually be held accountable for this very individual claim that you've made. I think, you know, for the apology piece of it, that the apology, we, I think we're, some of us maybe are too cynical, but there is a cynicism around this document leaking this past week of her application to the Texas bar where she clearly makes a claim to American Indian and that some of this feels a little poorly timed, you know, that it, that it doesn't feel like genuine contrition. It, it feels politically motivated that, oops, I got to clean up this mess. And many Cherokee people have also critiqued that the way that she went about this apology. And, and again, some of this gets into our own Cherokee politics, which of course we don't necessarily have time to go into today, but, but, calling our chief when she's made a very public video that she placed on her webpage with all of her family members backing her on this story. And she does this very public DNA stunt that played right into Trump's hands. So these things are playing out publicly and at the national level, right? And so her apology goes privately to our principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. And so it's like, well, I'm unsure how she's actually made amends when she's done these kind of national scale events, but wants to privately handle her apology, that she doesn't have a public reckoning that she actually needs to do. And I think many people feel like she does need to do a public reckoning. Additionally, she hasn't really apologized for taking the DNA test, which, which was really a turning point for me where she... She used science against Native people. And, and that feels particularly bad. <laughs> um, that, yeah. that, that in particular, that, 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 you know, it's bad for a whole, a whole variety of reasons, but, but this kind of engagement and I'm going to use this DNA testing to once and for all stake my claim as a Native person. And again, not actually having to conform to any of the understandings of indigeneity that operate within communities. Well, we are out of time. Uh, We really do thank you, uh, Dr. Reed, for joining us. This was a fascinating conversation. I think our listeners are going to get a whole lot out of it. Is there anything you want to plug of your own before, before we let you go? Well, not, not of my own. I would say if people are on Twitter and you know, definitely native Twitter is a place to kind of talk and have conversations. There are phenomenal people on there. Kim Tallbear's work on, mm-hmm. on DNA is, is and Kim Tallbear generally is a good place to be. A Cherokee genealogist that I think is phenomenal and doing good work on these issues and took a lot of heat very early is Twyla Barnes. And and she has a blog called Thoughts from Polly's Granddaughter that I think is, is a wonderful place to get information around these issues. Certainly, Alyssa Mount Pleasant, if you're is on my panel, all of my panelists, Doug Keel, Melinda Maynard-Lowry, Jeannie O'Brien, that all of those individuals, I think, have important things to say right now around these issues. And so I encourage everyone to kind of keep listening to all of those voices that are out there broadly, um, because certainly I, I am one voice and there are many others who I think are, are doing, um, are participating in this conversation and deepening it in ways that, that I cannot do justice to. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Julie Reed for joining us today. It seems to me that much of the nuance and the difficult long history of indigenous sovereignty that is closely attached to this debate is lost in the mainstream press and the various commentators who are putting their their mark on this current debate. And so hopefully all of the listeners have come away with a little bit more to chew on, a little bit more information on how this issue is affecting real people uh, in America today. So obviously this interview really centers the importance of good history for interpreting contemporary political issues. And so I think that's also a good segue to talk about, again, our sponsor, Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group. The work of Bob Beatty is to give that kind of nuanced context to any sort of issue, whether that be in a museum, uh, you know, a local historical association, a, a local church, or any kind of community or social group that wants to interpret uh, history for their communities. So if you're looking for this kind of deep historical thought and this kind of nuance for your organization, make sure to contact the Lindhurst Group at Lindhurst Group. Dot org. 
Well, thank you for your patience today with the substitute teacher. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And as John can't be here to say it himself, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Wave Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcatcher of your choice so others may more easily find this podcast. Let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. The podcast is brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Julie Reed. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. And I've been your producer, and for today, your host, Drew Durley Hermling. Although, don't worry, John Field will be back for regular duties next time. One and only producer and way of improvement leads home guy. <laughs> <laughs> Our person who is here. I'm a love producer, Drew Herbal. That was so good up to that point. Keep that in. Uh, uh, blooper reel.